Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. Alongside the great Jacqueline Coley, I am merely Mark Ellis, and what a program we have for y'all today with a very, very special guest. So, Jacqueline, you know I don't do the very, very special guest too often, so this is going to be something. And the fact that you and I are still on speaking terms means that my football team hasn't played yours yet, but that will be happening this weekend. It does happen this weekend. And I like put a little in there because this past Sunday after you cheated on our friendship with the Bears <laughs> and then Aaron Rodgers walked into that house and just dominated because he owns them and still owns he them. certainly does. His <laughs> it was words. a great day. It was a great day on Sunday. I'm not going to lie. It was like fitting. Look, it's 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 our modern sport, but back in medieval times, jousting was all the rage, and that's yes. why we are talking about the movie A Knight's Tale. It came out way back in the summer of two thousand one. Fifty nine percent rotten. Oh, so close. I like to call it fresh adjacent. It is a fresh movie according to the audience score. It's seventy nine percent, and our guest today, who we're going to be chewing the fat with all things a knight's tale is the one the only mr tim blake nelson you know him from everything from the recent battle to buster scruggs to oh brother where art thou which i believe was a year before a knight's tale um the watchman tv show uh, so many coen brothers works he's just a fantastic actor who's been doing it a long time and we're so blessed and happy to have him on. He's a writer, he's a playwright. I mean, he really does it all in his new film, Old Henry, which he stars in, is currently available on VOD. It is a really cool Western and there's a lot in there. There's more than meets the eye is what I will say with Old Henry. And so Jack, we're talking about A Knight's Tale today and I'm sure we'll get into a bunch of other movies with Tim Blake Nelson. But as far as A Knight's Tale goes, why don't you refresh everybody's memory as to what the hell is it about? Yes, so The Knight's Tale is a medieval kind of uh, romance <laughs> adventure, and it stars Heath Ledger, uh, Shannon Salzman, Mark Addy, Alan Tudyk, Rufus Sewell, and a whole bunch of other folks, also Paul Bettany. And it tells the story of a group of squires that is um, played by Alan, Heath Ledger, and also Mark Addy. They play those three, and they their knight that they work for and they're sort of his crew is a drunken idiot and he dies in the middle of a tournament. But the tournaments, the reason why these knights competes in them is for the prize money. And so if Sir 
Hector, who's the guy, dies, they are basically going to be destitute. So in an effort to make sure they can get enough money to sort of, you know, figure out what to do after this dude is done, Heath Ledger's character gets on to the horse and goes and impersonates his boss, but he takes the prize. And that sort of sets him on a path of impersonating a knight, even though he was born um, as a squire, but he's pretty good. And in the course of that, he captures the attention of some good people, like uh, Shannon Salisbury's character, who is sort of enamored Sossaman. with Did you just Sossaman? stake Shannon Salisbury? Did I say Salisbury? Sossaman. Wow. Shannon Sossaman. I did say Salisbury. Shannon Sossaman. Thank you. Uh, He sort of gets enamored with her. She's a a lady and he knows very well that she is not going to be able to deal with him once she finds out his real parentage. And also very, I would say, nefarious people like Rufus uh, Sola's character, who, again, he always plays a villain in every movie, as we already know. (laughs) Poor guy. But yeah, so he goes to the tournaments. He starts winning. He starts losing. He tries to woo her. The main thing that happens, though, is one of the tournaments he competes against the king of the future king of England, played by James Purfoy, Prince Edward. And Prince Edward just wants to joust like everyone else. It's the national pastime, but nobody wants to injure the king. And jousting is a very deadly sport. So everyone else in the tournament won't fight him. But Heath Ledger's character will fight him. Ends up that Heath Ledger and Rufus end up in the final bit of the tournament. They're going up against each other. He loses because Rufus cheats because he's always the bad guy. And they also find out that he is not of noble birth and he's not a knight. He ends up getting in a lot of trouble, put in the pillory. But lo and behold, the future king of England comes to save the day for him, makes him a knight, and they get to walk off into the sunset. It's medieval jousting meets a modern music score, and it is A Knight's Tale. And for more on what the critics were saying at the time of A Knight's Tale's release way back, oh my God, it's 20 years ago, we were all so young, Tim Ryan, our expert review curation manager, has his segment, Two Minutes with Tim. Critical knocks on A Knight's Tale are as follows. It's silly, it's got a lot of cliches, it's too long, it's uneven, and it's set in the Middle Ages while not really being set in the Middle Ages. But for fans of A Knight's Tale, many of those things are actually virtues. Add to that strong production values, the use of a classic stadium rock anthem, and a performance that solidified Heath Ledger's movie star status, and you've got a rousing, goofy, good time. A Knight's Tale is rotten at 59% with 151 reviews, but it does have a 79% audience score. So what did the critics have to say? In a rotten review, Bob Longino of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution wrote, Those who like Queen will find the love and honor stuff boring, while those looking for a touch of Camelot magic will find the hip stuff annoying and mood-breaking. However, in a fresh review, Kimberly Jones of the Austin Chronicle wrote, Minor grievances aside, this warped medieval yarn glides by on a funny, friendly, goofy sort of goodness. The Rotten Tomatoes critics' consensus reads, Once you get past the anachronisms, A Knight's Tale becomes a predictable, if spirited, Rocky on horseback. So that's A Knight's Tale. Let's kick it back to Jacqueline and Mark. They will, they will rock you. Thank you, Tim. And that just sets us up great to go ahead and get into this interview that we had with Mr. Tim Blake Nelson. Here we go. 
And we are back with Tim Blake Nelson. Welcome to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. Tim, it's such a pleasure having you on the show here. And I did get wind that you actually do have a lot of feelings about the tomato meter and that you were aware of the podcast. And so you 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 made a strong push to come on here. And obviously we love having you. So welcome to our world. Yes. Well, thank you very much. And I um, I have a movie called Anesthesia that is it is not even remotely close to being fresh. Uh, it's a movie I wrote and directed. Uh, and so, um, and I think it's got a 24 or something on, on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, so, yes, I have a special relationship with the site. <laughs> Although the movie I'm in right now, Old Henry, is, is uh, cranking in at a 95. So it goes both ways, I guess. Old Henry's doing great. Oh, yeah. Henry's doing great. And let's be honest, you are mostly on the fresh side, sir. Like I was looking at you on the side. I'm like, <laughs> there's not too many that you uh, that you're on the other side on it. And the great thing about this show is we bring justice. We've brought justice to movies that have a seven percent score. And trust me when I say that I, I feel deeply it's always about the snapshot. I like that. <laughs> well, I was eager um, to do my own movie, but I thought that would be incredibly gauche. So uh, I opted for A Knight's Tale. Well, this is this will work as your like audition to be one of the crew here, one of our catch up crew. And then if, if you pass the audition, then you can come back and we'll talk about anesthesia. And we're going to get that baby all the way up to fresh, too. So this is just the start of a beautiful relationship. But I'm glad you brought up old Henry right out of the gate because it's available now on VOD. And Jack and I had a chance to check it out. And I, I have some old Henry questions I want to ask you, particularly about how you develop that level of farm strength and what that training entails. Hmm. But yeah. before we get to that, we also have a movie that we're talking about where we go even further back in history to medieval times with A Knight's Tale. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, A Knight's Tale 59% rotten on the tomato meter. And it's just one of those films, like I mentioned, Spaceballs is also 59%. And it's just oh so close. The good news is that it's 79% with the audience score. So that's fresh there. But I have a feeling that we're talking about this movie today, Tim, because you think Rotten Tomatoes is indeed wrong about A Knight's Tale from 2001. I do. Uh, and I think that largely the movie was either under a appreciated for some underappreciated for the chances it took and or so sometimes both sometimes just this that uh, j just that and or its ambitions were missing misinterpreted because the the movie is all about anachronism and its main conceit is to mix in not only modern rock music and you've got a score in there for a medieval film which has uh, Queen and War and Thin Lizzy, yeah. Clapton, David Bowie, uh, Bachman Turner, Overdrive, ACDC in a, in a medieval <laughs> film. Uh, and this wasn't stuff that was pasted on afterwards. It was in the script and in the way the movie is directed because you have people actually clapping to the Queen song and moving to the beat of this music. There's a dance number um, where uh, they, they dance to this piece of music that Carter Burwell wrote for medieval instruments that involves into a kind of funk piece. And so 
the conceits weren't slapped on afterwards to save a movie. They were always intended to be part of the movie in a really, really smart and canny way. And they were used to promote the movie, too. I mean, I, I remember, Jacqueline, when this was coming out, I was, uh, I have a funny backstory as to when I saw where I saw this movie, but I remember the big sell was the queen, we will rock you, and just hearing that primal doo-doo-psh, and, yeah. and, and the tagline of the movie was, he will rock you, with a huge picture of Heath Ledger as a knight. So are you on the same side as, as Tim here, Jacqueline? Are, are you saying that Rotten Tomatoes is wrong? Is this score too low? Should it be a fresh movie? I mean, this movie should be fresh just for Paul Bettany popping in being <laughs> the best. Like and out, like the cast alone, I, I really I can't talk enough about how I felt that this film really hit. What is this like early two thousands? Yeah, like very early two thousands sort of sentiment. And this was, I think, my senior year of high school, freshman year of college, uh, two thousand and one. Yeah, I I love loved love this movie. This movie was actually marketed to me with Heath Ledger's face, you know, on that poster. I, I was the the core demographic of that audience, but anyone else who came along was uh, gonna have a good time. I, I was in that boat too, because I, the quick backstory, and then Tim, I wanna know where you were in your life when you saw this movie, because I was still in college, but I had this, this idea that was forming into something where I wanted to be a standup, and I went to NYU during that summer to take a couple writing, like comedic writing classes, and very quick I realized, I don't think I wanna be like a writer writer, but I just wanna stand up and tell jokes. I didn't know how to do that yet, and so I was just kind of searching for myself in New York for about a week, and that billboard was just the biggest billboard I've ever seen for A Knight's Tale right there in Times Square. So I went to go see the movie and it was just such a nice escape. And like Jacqueline said, Heath Ledger's face is selling her on the movie. If you incorporate rock music into a medieval film that's all about jousting, I'm going to want to see it. And I had a great time with it. I when we I found out this was the topic of of our conversation. I thought, yeah, I mean, it's a night. It's 59 percent sounds right. Watching the movie this past weekend. It's a lot of fun and it doesn't take itself too seriously, except for those moments you're talking about where it's clear that this was an intention of the filmmaker from the start to incorporate all these modern references and tunes into a medieval story. So where were you, where was Tim Blake Nelson in, in his acting career? What were you, what, what were you, were you on the scene yet? Were you matriculating towards your dream in 2001, the summer of 2001? Well, I didn't see it when it came out. Um, and matriculating into my dream. I mean, I don't know where, where um, I, I, I got out of drama school in 1990 and, and I did Oh Brother, Where Art Thou in 2000. And so I only really became known as a film actor because of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I'd done The Thin Red Line in 97, too, but I was mostly cut out of that. But in terms of, as you say, matriculating into my dream, dream into, into my dreams, uh, I was doing theater all through the 90s, and I was delighted to be doing that. Uh, so I kind of always had been living the life I'd wanted to live, I was acting constantly, just in theater obscurely off Broadway in New York. But the reason that I initially saw this movie was because I had uh, a seven-year-old son. So this was in about 1990, uh, uh, 2005. And I watched it with him. And I just appreciated the 
purity of its execution of what it wanted to be, which was an overtly anachronistic kind of revisionist knight's tale with foregrounded references to Geoffrey Chaucer, including Paul Bettany actually playing Chaucer in the movie, that was just for pure pleasure. It was, it was as unpretentious a movie as I've ever seen. And I think that's why the critics got it wrong, because they weren't willing to take the movie on its own terms with its ambitions and treat it as meaning to be pure fun. Because once you say this movie's aspiration, and it's a difficult one to achieve, is to be pure, unadulterated fun for its constituent audience, which is everyone from Jocelyn to my seven-year-old son at the time, then you can't not but appreciate it and uh, in the vernacular of Rotten Tomatoes, give it a good score. So, I, I, you know, that, that's how I came to it. And I watched it repeatedly with my son because he was seven and he just wanted to see it over and over again. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Yeah, let's get into some movie talk here. Jacqueline, let's start with you about like your favorite scene. Your favorite scene in A Knight's Tale. Like, what's the one for Jacqueline Coley that says, oh yeah, this is why I love this movie. Not just that Heath Ledger's the most beautiful person on the planet when this <laughs> film came out. I'm, I'm sure that's a selling point. That gets you into the theater. What kept you in there? Um, definitely, and I've alluded to this, I love this movie. I actually adored the costumes of it. I loved like the grandeur of it. Of course, Heath Ledger is dreamy. We all knew that. And an incredible actor as well. But really, like I said, Paul Bettany's introduction when he comes in, it is one of the best character introductions because it's like he just let's comes point in. Out, let's point out, just so we you know, know where Jacqueline is coming from, that he appears in the movie naked. He does appear naked, <laughs> but it's not just that he's naked. It's just that he is this bumbling, like uh, a cantankerous writer, but brilliant. And he, the way he speaks totally changes the dialogue in that moment. And it was such the great juxtaposition of him being like, I am I am brilliant beyond my, my peers, but I'm also wandering around here naked and I'm about to join this ragtag group. And... I, again, it just, it totally, you got the character in one minute. And of course, Paul Bettany is just born to play that that sort of like posh humor, as I would like to say, you know, like bringing in all of his like British um, 
schooling in the in the like dramatic arts to this just absolutely comedic role. And that's when I was like, oh, I really understand this movie because they were intentional with so much of it with the cast that they made with it. Because like when you look at the people who are part of this, this is not they're not trying to make the CW's night movie. They're actually trying to really elevate it with the people they get involved, like Mark Addy, um, Alan, uh, Paul Bettany, and of course Heath, Le- Heath Ledger. Like the, and they Shannon all, and Shannon, I was just about to say, and Shannon, they all really, I think, give this thing the gravitas that gets lost in the fact that you have people in the bleachers stomping to We Will Rock You. Which is really cool to watch. Which is too, really though. cool, though. I mean, those jousting sequences are so much fun. But, you know, I find myself going back to one of the dance numbers that you were talking about, Tim, where they're basically that was when I'm in a theater. And again, I'm maybe 20 years old and I'm watching it and I'm thinking, well, what are we doing here? We're melding all this new. I probably didn't know what anachronistic meant back then. And I might still not. But you feel like. Once that sequence takes place where there's a dance scene where it's clear that Shannon Sossaman and Heath Ledger's character are having feelings for each other and they're discovering it through this interpretive dance of David Bowie's golden years where you realize, oh, they aren't just shoehorning a popular soundtrack into this movie. This was actually written with the idea all along to have these songs into this movie because that's how they want to tell the story. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And by the way, let's not forget Laura Fraser. I was just about to uh, say the 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 girl like giving it like you will not diss on my armor. I loved her. I was like, that's who I wanted to be in the group. (laughs) Yeah, she's the blacksmith who's making William his armor that uh, suits him a little bit better than uh, than possibly the competitors. So uh, it is a great cast. If you had to point to one scene, Tim, that you said, okay, that's why my son and I enjoyed tonight. So that that's why this is a multi-generational crowd pleaser. What scene would you point to? There's a scene that's meant to be in, I believe, Notre Dame between William Heath Ledger's character and Jocelyn that played by Shannon Sossaman. And in the scene, she's going to challenge him to, to lose uh, rather than win to prove his love. Uh, as a as a kind of um, sacrifice, or you know, a, a really to find the, the the truth of what he's willing to give up for her, because she doesn't believe any knight wins for a woman. A knight wins for himself. But if he really wants to sacrifice for a woman, he'll lose for her, because that's truly a sacrifice. If you would prove your love, right, you should do your worst. My worst. What do you mean? Instead of winning to honor me with your high reputation, I want you to act against your normal character and do badly. Do badly? Lose. Losing proves nothing, except that I'm a loser. Wrong. Losing is a much keener test of your love. Losing would contradict your self-love, and losing would show your obedience to your lover and not to yourself. Really? We haven't mentioned the writer, director, and producer of this movie, um, Brian Helgeland. But he um, and uh, Richard Greatrix, the, the DP, have a tracking shot. It's just a parallel dolly shot that's wide. It looks like it's probably a 35 millimeter lens, maybe even a 28. Uh, and it's just tracking in a 50-50 shot between these um, two leading, you know, the two ingenues of the film. And it's a, ultimately a very romantic scene. It's a, it's a scene of courtship. 
And it just stays in this wide 50-50 full body, two characters, two shot. And the camera tracks with them up and down the, the, the cathedral. And it jumps in for a close-up eventually, but it's very brief. And it's just such a bold conceit uh, and editorially and in terms of the shooting strategy for a mainstream movie. I'm absolutely positive, although I don't know it for a fact, that they were fought, that he was fought. Brian Helgeland and his editor were probably fought by the studio to say, oh, please, you know, it's, it's your romantic leads come in for close-ups. Yeah. And he's just resolute yeah. in the strategy of the way that the, the, the scene is shot. And um, I really, really admire it. You know, the entire team that came together for this, this movie with Tony Burroughs' production design is impeccable because yeah. it's never overdone to where you think that the anachronistic use of music is suddenly not going to fit. There's a sort of weird cleanliness to the design that really works and simplicity that, that really works. Caroline Harris's costumes, as Jacqueline mentioned, are exquisite. The color palette of the movie is perfect. Nothing ever pops out at, at, at you. There's a real coherence to that. And the acting style, as Jacqueline was saying, it, it wasn't cast with CW actors. No, nothing against them. They. They do a great CW job. Actors end up becoming wonderful actors uh, later in life. But Absolutely. these were real actors. I mean, Rufus Sewell. Uh, That's what I was just about to say. <laughs> Keith, Mark Addy, Alan Tudyk, with whom I've acted on stage. There's a movie I did called Holes. And the director, Andy Davis, said, I'll be damned if I'm going to cast this movie in a way that condescends to the audience. And so he put Sigourney <laughs> Weaver and, and uh, John Voight and Patricia Arquette in, in roles and gave, gave Shia LaBeouf his first movie um, in that. And, and I feel like Brian Helgeland cast real actors in these roles. And you were talking, I'll shut up in a minute. Um, you were talking no, this about- This is riveting. This is, no, this is the you, insight you I want. know these people. <laughs> like we just know them from IMDb. Talk yeah. more about your time with Alan Tudyk. Real talk, well, I love it. Um, so Paul Bettany, plays Chaucer in this. And there's an, in, an, in another movie, he plays um, Darwin because he's Darwin in Master and Commander. Right. Uh, and, you know, Paul Bettany is just, as you said, he's an exquisite and exquisitely trained actor. And Alan Tudyk is as well. Uh, I did a play um, based on Oedipus with, with Alan Tudyk wow. uh, at Classic Stage Company in New York. And he's such a generous actor um, with whom to be on stage. And you just get that in the performance. That trio in, um, in Knight's Tale of Heath Ledger and Mark Addy and Alan Tudyk is, is it's, it's like, um, uh, it, you know, it's white, like watching great dancers work with one another. It's like a ballet, their scenes. Yeah. Uh, also, I want to shout out uh, James Purfoy another oh, uh, the black prince yeah 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 james purfoy who's you know obviously a huge part of uh how that movie plots there uh yeah no you you kind of took uh, the words out of my mouth with with again just like the cast of this it also to the director um brian the thing that i knew him from which i think this may have been like the first or second thing he did after this was uh la confidential 
because he was one of the screenwriters on that. And I'm like, this guy is making specific choices. He's done a lot of really, I think, incredible films that, you know, like he doesn't mind taking big swings and adapting James uh, James's book, which is just this mess of like hundreds of thousands <laughs> of pages and condensing that down. He also did Mystic River. The man, I think, really understands stories and swings. Well, and so, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and let's just take a further nod to Brian Helgeland, the historical intelligence of understanding what the Canterbury Tales uh, are all about. Entertainment. So the Canterbury Tales, the setting is passing the time at night with entertainment and people telling stories to one another. And it was absolutely a modern thing of its time, that piece of literature. And so he takes our most thrilling and exciting storytelling art form, cinema, and he updates a Canterbury tale to be the same sort of entertainment. And so it's tantamount in our modern culture to what the Canterbury Tales were back then. And that's just so fucking smart. Yeah. It's brilliant. And I, I can't let this conversation continue because Jacqueline said big swings and Alan said historical context. So I can't let this go on without also mentioning Brian Helgeland directed 42, the Jackie Robinson story ah, starring Chadwick yeah. Boseman. And that's got big swings and it's got a lot of historical value as well. And if you this, I'm going to take a big swing with this interview now, because, Tim, I my favorite character in this is actually Mark Addy's character. And it's funny because Mark Addy would go on to be in that medieval project that everyone just takes so seriously. I guess it's not medieval. It's in another land, but it's Game of Thrones. And I think that th there's a chance that a lot of people, when they first reviewed A Knight's Tale, were just looking in this box of, okay, well, if you're medieval, you got to be super serious and you have to treat everything as of the time, how we would a Game of Thrones and judge it on those merits. But A Knight's Tale never wanted to be that, never cared about being that. It was, like you said, all about inspired by the Canterbury Tales as a form of entertainment. Is there a specific character in here that, that Tim Blake Nelson says, ah, I would have loved a crack at that character. Who would you have played in A Knight's Tale if we can go there? Well, I think the likelihood would have been that I would have played either um, Watt, which is Alan Tudyk's character, or uh, Roland, which is Mark Addy's character. And that's where I would have been put. I wouldn't have been as good as either of them. So I'm not, you know, I think that I, I never even knew this, this uh, movie existed because it was, uh, I never auditioned for it. I, you know, it was before Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And so I wasn't on anybody's map. But I guess the role I would want to have played would have been Adamir, Adamar, uh, Rufus Sewell's uh, part. And no, I wouldn't have been as good as Rufus. Uh, he was amazing. But I would have liked that role just because of the, the, the I don't know, the challenges of it. It would have been outside my box. Uh, it would have been much easier for me to, to slip into one of the other uh, roles, uh, Roland or Watt. 
I don't want to steal Mark's thunder, but I do have to say this because it's just too good of a, a transition. That's kind of what I felt watching old Henry. I in was the going sense, there, Jacqueline. You well are done. good. Thank you. <laughs> no, seriously, though, with old Henry, because what was great about that casting, and I don't want to give too much away, but they kind of allude to it in the trailer, is you're a man where not everybody knows you possess a particular set of skills, maybe. Like, you know what I mean? Like you are a man that people are underestimating. And I loved your casting in that because, again, this is not like if you see a I don't know, I'm like uh, I'm trying to think of like an actor right now. Like if you saw Chris Pratt, you know, chopping wood on a farm, you're like, yeah, dude, that dude's about to go kill somebody or you know what I mean? Like, but having you in this role, I just loved that turn and just how like lethal you got in it. And it was so great to see the like, don't look past this person because you don't know everybody's story. And I loved that in this. And I'm wondering if that's what attracted you to the role. Well, it's in part what attracted me to the role. I definitely, I'm 57 now and I've been doing this for a while and I want to be challenged. At the same time, I don't want to ruin somebody's movie. And so, (laughs) uh, you know, I would never have been able to pull off what Rufus Sewell did in A Knight's Tale even though that's the part I would want to have played because it would have been such a challenge. And so had Brian Helgeland been inane enough to offer me that role, uh, were I on his radar at the time, I probably would have said, oh my God, thank you so much. And you don't know how difficult this is, but don't cast me. I'm too small. (laughs) I just, I don't buy myself on a horse uh, jousting against Heath Ledger and uh, splintering a lance against his armor. It's just no people will laugh at your movie. And this script is great. And I love all the music and everything you're intending. It's exciting. But please, Old Henry, though, was different because the actual character I'm playing without giving it away was actually physically pretty much my height and weight. Uh, And once I learned that, a lot of the dread I had about taking the role on or enough of it dissipated uh, to where I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and try this. That said, I had to give it a pretty serious think because I'm, I'm, I'm decidedly not in real life close to the character I play in that movie. I mean, I kind of would hope not. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, but- like, a, you know, all right, guy. <laughs> and again, you have a contract with it when, when you take on a part with your director. And that is, I'm going to come through for you. And, you know, I take that contract very, very seriously. I, you know, I'm not in drama school anymore. I played Falstaff in my second year of drama school. And that's a role that nobody would ever give me because he's meant to be physically large and, 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 um, that was fine for drama school. Uh, but out in the professional world, people have a lot at stake in these projects. And you just, you owe it to them to do everything you can not to disappoint. And, and that starts with saying, yes, I think I can do this and really believing that and not just being your ego. Yeah, you, you certainly didn't disappoint in that movie because there was a physical transformation that that I noticed where you you seem to have... I mean, it, it's weird to say it like this, but you 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 thickened up, and there was like farm strength on you. So, what what sort of 
What's that training regimen like? Because you're also, I, I imagine, working on a lot of horsemanship skills at the same time that you're you're trying to look like you have been working on a farm for decades. I luckily had about, um, in part because of COVID, I had about a year to prep for this movie. Now, I was doing other movies at the time, so I, I wasn't solely concentrating on this, but I was certainly... the matriculation onto the set was always on the set was always on my radar and I was working on it in some way, shape or form pretty much on a daily basis for about a year. And then in the, I'd say month and a half leading up to doing it, I was really concentrating on it. And, and that involved both getting ready to play the part physically and then actually getting down to Tennessee where we shot the movie three weeks early uh, to start, you know, to, to learning to butcher a hog and working on the, with the horses. And I fire a lot of different guns in the movie and really learning them so well that they felt like they were appendages rather than, you know, you need to look like they're tools you use every day. Obviously that's part of what an actor has to do or gets to do. I mean, I think it's a privilege to get to learn all this stuff. And then the dialect and the look of the guy and all of that, we just took our time, uh, the director and I, and this wonderful uh, makeup artist with whom I've worked a lot named David Atherton. And so it was a, a good, long process, uh, thankfully. And it is such a collaborative effort when when you do really any movie. But circling back to a Knight's Tale a little bit here, I know Carter Burwell. You mentioned did did, did the score, did, did worked on the soundtrack with that. And Burwell's also done a number of Coen Brothers collabs, I believe. And so, if we talk about the music that is in a Knight's Tale, is is what's the particular song that you feel like was 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 most well used? What was the one? It could be modern. Or could, we can just talk about what Carter did on a Knight's Tale, but how important was the music and what's that one piece that really stood out to you? I think probably the Bowie piece uh, and the way it interfaces with the period music. You know, there are two levels of of the way that that Brian Helgeland uses the the, the rock music in the movie. One is, is sort of, I'd call foregrounded tongue in cheek. So when he uses a song like um, Taking Care of Business, the Bachman Turner Overdrive classic, or um, Low Rider uh, by War, <laughs> or um, We Will Rock You, the Queen piece early on, he's, he's winking at the audience. If the nobles find out who you are, they'll be the devil to pay. And pray that they don't. And that, but then on a deeper level, he uses other songs. And, and I, would, I would say that the Bowie piece is, is this, that aren't as, um, I, I don't know, ironic would maybe be the word, uh, or postmodern in, in that, they're, that they're commenting in, a, in, a, in an almost humorous way about what's going on on screen. And, and, and the anachronism is ironic because it's so different from what, it is you're watching. So it's the opposite of it's, it's kind of the opposite of its meaning, but the words are saying exactly what the scene means. 
And that aspect of it isn't ironic. But that stuff's fun and great and works. But I'm more interested in the in in the way that the Bowie song works, which is actually quite um, emotional and impactful and 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 has a real depth to it. And the the hair, Shannon Sossaman's hair in that scene is amazing. It's it's got this it's 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 dyed and it it has these sort of um, punk like spikes. And it almost foreshadows that, you know, you're going to get that song later, that style of music. And so that would be probably be my favorite. Yeah, Jacqueline, that one feels like it is almost of the time in, in a weird way. And it's and it's the way that Golden Years is utilized. And I probably didn't even know that that was a David Bowie tune when I saw the movie. But it, like I heard it and I'm watching the scene play out and I'm in the theater. I'm like, that sounds like Bowie. And I'm trying to guess who this is because I knew Backman Turner Overdrive and I knew Queen, but you also just get into it. That one just shuttles you into the time period in a way that some of the other ones didn't. Although, I mean, look, a huge sports fan. I love the feeling of being in an arena or just being at a joust with everybody doing the We Will Rock You because it's just, you got to think, you go back to the days of of cavemen and they're making noises <laughs> like that to get themselves pumped up to go, you know, hunt a saber tooth tiger. The other thing I want you to think is interesting is Queen bookends it with We Are yeah. the Champions. And that was the one that more hit for me. It's like when we ride off into, and granted, it's on the nose. Let's be real. <laughs> like literally. Yeah, like, that's like, that first level. Yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> but it still, I thought was really interesting and fun. Look, I'm a huge Queen fan. You'll be hard pressed for me to ever say there's a bad time to listen to um, Freddie Mercury sing because that was what he was put on this earth to do. But if I wasn't going to go for the obvious choice, I would take uh, Sly and the Family Stone for Mm. I Want to Take You Higher because that is also... As Mark knows, you you don't know this, Tim, but I'm a a huge fan of the 70s. I feel like in a lot of ways, I wish that that was more um, the sentiment and the music and the style of now. And so anytime I hear Sly and the Family Stone, it just instantly transports me to that time period. So... You were born too late, Jacqueline. We, we could have done we could have done like it. a radio version of a podcast and just been ahead of our time for once. We would have been like the best radio duo on morning radio. <laughs> it would be in Austin, Texas or like where you were from in North Carolina. We'd be small market, but we would be like <laughs> beloved. You um, would be. I've got to tell you, Jacqueline, having lived through the 70s, uh, I guess I was six when they began and 16 when... 1980 came in uh there were some it wasn't all roses true that (laughs) true that i like the look and the style but let's be honest i'm not getting in a time machine anytime soon that's always the joke with black folks of like what where would you want to go in history nowhere (laughs) (laughs) is not good option (laughs) no this is like this is not it gets really dicey anytime before about 1980 and it's still dicey now so no i don't want to go back in time there's a great movie about a girl that gets lost in the world of jane austen and her best friend is played by guggen botha raw and she's like i'm gonna go back and i'm gonna go live in this time frame come with me and she's like i'm black no bye no Yeah, I just I, I just enjoy the modern the modern medicines of the day that we live True in. That. So I don't think I need to go back any further than that. And that's why this stuff You don't want to be bled when you have a cold? I mean seriously. I, I don't want any doctor acknowledging my humors 
and saying which one we need to put leeches on. That doesn't sound like a good day at my healthcare provider. But there's there's always things from every decade that sort of bubble up and we say, oh, well, that's why I would only be there because that one specific thing. And I think that, you know, I, I th that is one of the interesting things about A Knight's Tale is that it really doesn't feel like a movie that necessarily came out in 2001. Like you can't really put this in a box as far as, oh, that feels like an early 2000s movie. It, it does have, upon rewatching it 20 years after it was released, a timeless quality to it. And and look, one of the reasons why we still celebrate this movie is the guy who's on the poster who got you into the theater, and that's Heath Ledger. And so Heath Ledger had such a, an eclectic career and has become an icon. Is there is there something you can point to, Tim, that you say that's why Heath was just so, so great, but also so, so different and stood alone from other actors of his generation? Well, I, I, um, I met Heath uh, and he, I think a lot of these guys who break through and really capture the cultural imagination in a serious way have a decency about them. And, and that works on two levels. First of all, they'll work again and again because people want them around. And as a, an, an actor who's been around for a while and been around a lot of movie stars, it makes a difference when a star is decent to others. And Heath was that. He was just a good guy. He really was a good guy. And in spite of the fact that he ended up acting irresponsibly and, and leaving us before he should have, and that included his wonderful daughter, whom I know um, actually better than I know Heath now, because I'm friends with Michelle Williams. Um, he was a good dad, at least as far as I saw. But also when someone is decent, the, just the capture apparatus of a, of a movie camera, whether it's digital or on film, gives us more information about the face and the person really than our eye does. And even while it abstracts the human face in a certain respect, it looks into you, it gets you. And I think Heath's decency as a person came through in his portrayals. And I include uh, an apart like the Joker because this was an awful anarchic, nihilistic character uh, bent on destruction. But you never lost sight of that character's pain. And somehow he humanized that son of a bitch, the Joker. <laughs> yeah. Joaquin Phoenix did it too. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so I think what I would say, just again, as far as I knew Heath, it was the decency. And then there's the talent and the fact that he was drop dead gorgeous and, and a lot of other stuff. And that, you know, the talent was manifold because he wasn't a movie star, he was an actor which he proved in, in Joker, but also Brokeback Mountain and, and many other films. Uh, but yeah, I would say in addition to the talent and the incredible talent and good looks, he was a decent guy. And that came through both as in, in his professional interactions and his interactions, you know, through the movie screen with audiences. 
Yeah. Yeah. And he is just so magnetic as William in this movie where you just root for him. As soon as he's on screen, you just you just want the guy to get a win. And so there's no question. Yeah, there's as soon, when we see Rufus Sewell pop up as Adam Mar, there's no way we're pulling for this guy because he's going. We want Heath to be the the underdog story. And the movie sets him up like that. And and again, just he he knocks it out of the park. And so having that sort of range as an actor, and I, and I would put you in that class as well, Tim. It's just it, it's amazing to see the variety of roles that one can accomplish in their career. Is is this the last time we see you in a western, or do do we get more westerns now that old Henry, you're so great in it, and and you just feel so authentic in it? Are we doing more westerns, or are you done with westerns after all that horse riding and farm handing? Oh no, I love westerns, and actually, I'm I'm. I'm supposed to, I mean, they're, they're developing it right now. Um, but there's a Western I'm supposed to do perhaps next year. That's based on the Iliad. Mm. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I mean, yeah, that's, oh, this is the thing that I think is interesting about Greek sort of like, um, poetry, which was originally ballads, like the Iliad. It's the same thing as like around the campfire stories for like people that were going across the trail, like that whole idea of just communal storytelling. And to your point, the Canterbury Tales as well. Um, any sort of things that come out from that, those like epic journey type, uh, stories I live for. That's going to be great. That, that, that yeah. that's exciting. And it's just, it, and Again, it was such a joy to have to have you on the show and, and the movie we're talking about that you can currently catch Tim Blake Nelson in as old Henry. It's available on VOD wherever you are. Um, but we can't let you get out of here, though, Tim, before. Do you have a movie recommendation that that you feel like maybe can relate to A Knight's Tale in some way or it's just something that you're currently enjoying that you checked out and you're like, oh, no, the world needs to know about this? Well, I watch a lot of indie films. Yeah, I can name a bunch of off the radar movies that I've yeah. seen in the last year that I love. Gimme. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, Give Me Liberty. Uh, Evolution is another. Under the Skin uh, is another. Yep. The Load, which is a, a uh, Croatian film, is another. So there are some. Those are... Those are, you know, those are obscure indie films that are nothing short of extraordinary. All of them. I will give it to you. I cover independent film and awards and I write a weekly column and you got you got two movies on that list. I hadn't I hadn't uh, I hadn't seen the load or heard of it and I hadn't seen her evolution. And like, just let me tell you, it'd be like trying to get a sports uh, stat past Mark. Like you were really deep on that one. But I will give you one better if you haven't seen Red Rocket yet. I saw that one, and it is my favorite movie of the year. Wow. Oh, I will see it. Yeah. Sean Baker is incredible. I think you will appreciate it, especially because it, it has a lot about people sort of going through everything to own their story. And Sean Baker, who's just brilliant in everything that he does. So I will watch that. Red yeah. Rocket. Yeah, Red Rocket. And I would be remiss, though, if I didn't just say that it feels like you're going into the Guillermo T uh, Toro universe and <laughs> and uh, it'd be really like getting deep Pinocchio Nightmare Alley. You're also doing this, I think, limited thing with him. But can you tell me anything about Nightmare Alley as the awards editor? I, I have to just like, come on, give me can you give me anything before you leave? I think it's one of the most lucid indictments of capitalism that I've ever read. Wow. It 
soars poetically in that regard. And so what he did with fascism in Devil's Backbone and mm -hmm. in Pan's Labyrinth, he does with capitalism in Nightmare Alley. And I want to raise my hand and say I am a capitalist. Uh, I, I, I don't I don't have any, you know, but but what Guillermo explores is the is is the other side of it. Uh, and it's really ultimately an allegory to me uh, on capitalism. And that's it's that's it's it's beating heart. What I saw, I have not seen the movie, but what I saw when I was on set and what I saw in terms of what Guillermo has shown me with certain scenes uh, it's every bit as, as visually striking as anything he's ever done. Oh, Jack, wow. when you asked the question, now you, y'all done gone and got me excited about this because I just, I just recently did an episode involving Guillermo for my show versus on Peacock and just researching and rewatching his entire library, including the devil's backbone, which is just, Brilliant. it's still so mind blowingly well done and it holds up so well and it's so creepy but it also has messages and devil's backbone is definitely one y'all should see too so we gave everybody who's listening a lot of homework and the not the least of which is y'all got to check out tim blake nelson's current film that might still be in theaters but you can definitely catch it on vot uh vod too is old henry it's just a fantastic job as he did here today as he always does the man delivers whether he's on screen or on a podcast. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson, it was an honor having you on the show. Thank you for being one of our more esteemed members of our catch-up crew. Yeah. It was my absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you. So much fun having him on the show. I mean, you're talking about one of those great actors who you don't even want to put in a box as just a character actor, especially after you see something like Old Henry, which again, available on VOD right now. We don't have a mailbag today, so we're just going to remind y'all, we always love your suggestions, your ideas, your takes, and you can email us anytime. RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. And if you're listening to this right now, why don't you go ahead and leave a review a rating, something that helps us because you enjoy the show on whatever podcast platform you're currently enjoying us on. Next week, Jacqueline, it is a big, big show because it's a big, big movie we're talking about. And it is. Next week, we're going to be talking about the Avengers in anticipation of the even bigger, the Eternals or Eternals. Sorry, we're talking about the Avengers to get ready for Eternals, which is hitting theaters that week. I think it's Avengers Endgame. I think it's the last one. It's the last. Oh, it's the last the one. Sorry, why did I say Avengers? Last it's Endgame. One. Endgame. Well, we could do Avengers. I mean, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about any of these celebrating Eternals coming out. So that is going to have a very special guest attached to that. And for our very, very special guest today, Tim Blake Nelson, that is Jacqueline Coley. That is our engineer, Brian Perez, producing Lucy in the building. I am Millie Mark Ells. For all the good folks here at Rotten Tomatoes, thank you for listening, and we'll see y'all next week for some snapping. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.